Hello and welcome to another episode of Business Bites here on Gary Talks. And I'm delighted to be joined by podcaster Jason Farias, who has the podcast My Madness Method. There's a reason why the title is what it is. So, Jason, I'll let you start off and tell your story and, and explain the journey that you have had to go on, the learnings, the findings, and I suppose why you're now helping people really who might be struggling with drugs. Sure. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate that. Well, you know, today, as a 47-year-old father and husband and person in recovery, um, a piece that I had found that was missing in this adventure of recovery was my, my ability to relate to the stories. You know, what I was finding was, is that paths to recovery are not one size fits all. And there's a whole group of people out there that want to recover out loud, Mm. you know, but what isn't out there is easy access to stories to which you can relate. Like, Hey, I've been through that. You know, um, I've sat in recovery rooms where we watch Ted talks and, you know, the Ted talks are great, you know, and the intent there is accurate. Okay. But your ability to connect to somebody that's got a 15 minute spot to get it out, you know, it's really hard to connect that way. And the piece of my adventure that went beyond just addiction and the rabbit holes that you fall down there is why did the whole thing begin? You know, and it was really digging back, digging in the crates, right? Like looking back, what what drew me into this and, and having moved a lot when I was young and already having this feeling of inadequacy, right? There's no father in the picture. Like I didn't have a unique story. It's just, it's mine, mm. you know? Um, but there was the feelings of a child not feeling wanted and with the drugs and the groups of people that you get involved with that way, the acceptance comes very easy, right? Okay. We're all going to do drugs together. And you know, when you become the person that always has it, you, you seem to be a very welcomed person in the room when those are the people with which you surround yourself. So now that I'm on the other side of this and have still struggled and daily struggles, but my need to help others, comes from accepting who I am and and really just wanting people to embrace everything about their struggle okay it, it's what it's what makes you who you are and, and you don't have to have been a drug addict you don't have to have been an alcoholic right but the struggles that we all go through you have to accept them you're not going to change them we can't go back But it's in those darkest times of your recovery, which I'll be honest, the recovery part of this is much harder than the deepest, darkest piece of the addiction. Because if you make it into a rehab or you make it into a recovery room and, you know, here's, here's the steps, you know, like there's the, uh, the steps to take for AA or NA or whatever. And and when you fail at any of those as an addict, you feel like you've completely failed. Oh, I might as well give up, you know? And as deep as I wound up dealing drugs, doing drugs, the, the whole thing, like I've caused harm in my path and I owe it to the people that have believed in me, the people that have supported me and the people that, that love me. I, I owe it to them to try to make things 
at least a little bit better. You were mentioning there that you grew up with no dad around. So you're 47 years of age. To this day, you don't actually know who your father is. Is that correct? Well, I found that I have a sister. I did the 23 and me and the ancestry. And I, I found that I, I have a sister and she actually grew up in the same town I did, but we didn't know each other. And we don't, we, we can only assume I haven't spoken to her father, but I have to assume by default that that is who he is. But to this day, I, I do not have a relationship with my biological father. No, I don't. Have you met your sister? I did actually last year we met up and we had coffee together and kind of touched bases and we just got to know each other. We didn't really discuss this gentleman because mm -hmm. she shared with me that she's not even a hundred percent sure if he's her father. <laughs> it's funny how the mud, the, the waters get muddy in, in that way, but we know that she and I are related. And so we've begun you know, we, we began a relationship. We, we, uh, we talk, you know, share pictures of each other's kids. You know, we're trying to, you know, that's my sister. I'm her brother. Mm. You know, um, it's, it's a little missing piece of the, of the puzzle. So your mother raised you, correct? Correct. Well, my mother and my grandmother together. Yes. And you mentioned that you're going from one place to another moving. Yeah, uh, it seems like a very kind of chaotic, busy childhood. Yes. So, so, yes, it, so what's going on there when you're young with your mother and granny? What? Well, my mom had me, she was young. She was 19, maybe not necessarily ready to be a mom, but she, she did the best that she could. And, and knowing that she was in a little bit over her head at some point in her life that she needed to get her things in a row. I, I was sent to live with my grandmother and my grandmother helped raise me and, you know, naturally as grandmothers do, and, and I was the first grandchild and, and so forth, you know, I was quite spoiled. And, and, uh, so when it was time to go back to mother, that was a very devastating activity for a five, seven, eight year old. And those happened a few times, the bouncing back and forth. It wasn't something that I realized how devastating it was until now that I'm an adult. And I think back, you know, imagine that happening to a five, six, seven year old. It's, in that hindsight that I realized, okay, this is, this is the start of some negative views on, on life. You know, nobody wants me. Why doesn't anybody love me? You know, but at the time that, that, that's not the outward feeling, right? Mm. That wasn't an active thought in my head, but as I got to be an adult and it starts having effects on my personal relationships, my business relationships, my, it, it seemed to spill over everywhere. And it took me going back and dealing with that as a five-year-old that allowed me to accept it now that these were just people loving me the best way that they could. But I had this vision in my head of how I wanted to be loved. Like I needed all this attention, you know, and it's an interesting thing that I find I've had discussions with folks and, and it's not just me. Like I find that that's a recurring conversation that I have is people misinterpreting people loving the best they can as just not being adequate, you know, and that's mm -hmm. not fair, you know? So was your mother doing drugs then when you were young? That's an interesting question, Gary. I have never asked her that question. Um, that's my mom, mm -hmm. you know? Um, 
I'm I'm gonna let her. I don't need to know all the ins and outs. I can look back as an adult now, knowing what I've been through, and make some assumptions. But I've never asked that question. So tell me then about yourself. So you've grown up as a teenager. You've had these forms of years where you haven't really felt a place that you belong or that you're completely unconditionally loved and that that is where you will be, you know, arms around and supported. And, you know, Mm -hmm. there's just so much unknown for you at such an early age in your life. So what happens then in your teens and when you start feeling you don't belong and drugs come into your life? Well, I went to a different school every year from about third grade on. So every year was making, hurry up, make friends, hurry up, make friends. And in those scenarios, it's a lot easier to make friends with the other misfits that are in a similar mindset, mm-hmm. whether it's drugs or not. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, like I didn't even know what marijuana looked like until I was just before my 17th birthday. Hadn't seen it before. Okay. I was, I was a good kid. I, I really was kind of the nerdy, the nerdy kid, but, but I was sort of pushed into these behaviors that allowed me to connect with the most accessible people I could connect with. And so you know, we started smoking some weed and hanging out and, and things like that. And then I was out on my own, had my own place before I was 18. And then a, a buddy called up and was like, hey, you guys got to check this stuff out. And we popped over to his house and he had some amphetamines and we tried them out. And And the first thing I thought was, oh, we got to get a ton of this. Everybody's going to love it. And I was working, my buddies were working, so we just bought a bunch of it. And it was immediate acceptance by everybody. First of all, everybody that tried it was no longer in their right mind and, and feeling fantastic, you know, the, 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 as the drugs do. You know, they never start off crazy bad. It's always, well, not always, but for the most part, it's fun in the beginning. Mm. And I was finding that, hey, I'm getting this attention that I've been looking for. I'm you know, everybody's showing me love and respect and I'm being placed as a priority for people, you know, completely negating the fact of the reality of why I was just so happy to be accepted and get that attention and kind of be in the man, yeah. you know, is and, and it, for me, it was never really necessarily about the drugs. I loved being accepted and this false feeling of being loved. So this is where it got deep. Oh, cause the more I have, the more I get, you know, I was always kind of harassed by friends or whomever, because I would hand drugs out and not charge anybody for anything. Just, you know, because of the attention they gave me, it was, and, and, and that's where it just really snowballed out of control because I mean, of course the money started coming like crazy and the cars and, and, you know, homes were renting and stuff like that. And, but it was, for me, it was the attention and the acceptance, uh, you know, all masqueraded under dealing drugs. Quantity wise, how many drugs were you selling or how much money were you making? We started off 
our first amount we ever bought was like a half an ounce of methamphetamine. Okay. I, I don't really, marijuana in a small country town is a plentiful. So that was really never, that was just around. Um, but we started off, we bought a half ounce and within a few months we were having pounds of it. You know, it didn't take very long for me to go from, Hey buddy, where'd you get this? Let's get more. Okay. Hey person that, that supplied this, who do you get it from? Mm. And now I'm talking to that person and I'm getting it cheap and a lot. Um, you know, and then I, I, I've just always been very personable. Like I really like to talk to people, been always very honest. And the people that I was dealing with like that, they knew that what it is I'm telling them was true. And, you know, I was able to turn product quick as well, you know? Yeah. It very quickly got, you know, into the tens of thousands of dollars weekly to monthly, you know, and, and, and when you think about this in 1995, we were all, you know, when we got bored, we'd go to like the local junkyard and buy cars that were still running and go have demolition derbies on the road and then have them towed back to the, to the junkyard. You know, I mean, we just had ridiculous at that time. Like now when people think of tens of thousands of dollars, they kind of scoff at it, you know, but in 1995 in a little country town, that's a lot of money and a lot of disposable income for 18, 19 year olds. So when did it start getting ugly? Uh, that was hills and valleys. Okay. So it, it would get ugly you know, the first time, so, so when it all first started out and it was myself and my friends, the first one of the buddies that felt like he was more concerned with, I'm the man, I want the power, I want all this. Okay. Well, of course that got ugly because that wasn't what this was about. This was about us making some money and having a good time. So it turns ugly there. It turns ugly once your name gets out there uh, and the cops know who you are and there are task forces put together just to come look for you and your friends. And here's what's, what's wild is, is looking back on that. That's a wild story. But at the time I was just like, it's not me. I'm just this good kid and just having a good time and everybody loves me. And my worldview was, was not okay. I mean, it was influenced by drugs and, and the fact that I wasn't in it, to be a drug dealer, I was in it for the attention. The fact that it was getting that kind of out of control completely eluded me. Did you see anyone getting hurt then? Uh, I mean, I've seen a few people get beat up, but it wasn't like, like these breaking bad. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't these dramatized. I heard stories of things like that going on, but again, that's not, what we were about, you know, we were all, I, 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 we were good kids in, you know, quote unquote, you know, like we were the kids getting good grades. We were on the golf team, on the baseball team. It's just this thing that snowballed out of control. And, you know, we, we sort of clung together because we all had similar deficiencies in our private lives that we clung on to each other for similar reasons but we were all on very different paths. And, you know, we, we did lose some friends along the way. Some guys, you know, died. Some guys went to prison. Some guys got 
their minds right and walked away. But as far as getting hurt, not in the beginning. You know, I mean, there were fist fights and stuff, but I mean, again, when you're going to keggers out in in orchards and it, getting in fist fights wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't until this whole thing led me to Las Vegas, which interestingly, I ran to Vegas to try to get away from everything. And it just increased tenfold. But out there, you know, now we're talking about getting shot at, getting, you know, I, I was shot at once on uh, Tropicana and Valley View in Las Vegas while I was sitting in a car. And me still being that piece of me that exists, that is the protector. I just got out of the car and started. To, we were at a stoplight. It was two o'clock in the afternoon. And I was telling people, hey, you got you to get down. You got to get down. And I was telling a woman, you got to run this light. You got to go. You got to go. And, and we're just, at the meantime, we're getting shot at. Um, so it definitely went really dark in Las Vegas. Okay. So you left California. Why did you leave there? What were you running away from? What did you not like that you went to Vegas? Well, it, it, that's an interesting question. So there was nothing holding me down. I, so I wanted to move around and check some places out. We left California once. We went to Arizona. My girlfriend and I did. We, we lived in Arizona. And somehow I found my way into the dope game there too. And then we left Arizona and came back to California. And we left again. We went to Texas. Now, Texas, everything was okay. My wife now was actually one of the Olympic team members, uh, uh, gymnastic Olympic team members, off-season coach. So we were out there with the Olympic team and, and it, so life was good for a minute, but then that ended. So we came back home again and I mean, who doesn't like Vegas, right? The lights, the, the energy, the, so we thought, you know what? I, I mean, there were multiple scenarios that led us to make the decision to finally go to Vegas. You know, they call it in the NA and AA rooms, they call it a geographical, right? You move away thinking your problems aren't going to follow you. And, and oh, they do. You know, that task force I was talking about that was formed to come after my friends and people that were around me actually notified Vegas that I was there. Oh. And I had, I had been stopped near my hotel or near, near my, my apartment. And the cops beat me up pretty good and they took my drugs and my money and they, they let me know who told them I was there and they just left me there. So it was immediately dark out there, you know, you know, I've only been back to Vegas once since then. It's, it's pretty tough. You know, the, the whole reason I started this podcast was to tell the story about Las Vegas. But to understand Las Vegas, you kind of got to know where we started, where it went, and why we're there. Because Vegas was another level. Las Vegas was, you know, brokering deals between the Chinese triad and the Mexican mafia. And it was working with the hell's angels and, and it, it was nothing I ever intended to get involved with, but I've also been really good at making a deal, you know, and, and I can't pass up making some good money, you know, um, which, it, you know, once I 
stick finally got away from all that and got involved in the business world has served me fantastic, you know. And who was shooting at you in Las Vegas? Uh, some guys that weren't real big fans of the fact I showed up and started taking so much money out of their pockets. So you arrive and you are basically dealing with various mafias in Las Vegas. Yeah. Well, when we got there, see, here's the thing. When we got there, it was, we went and got normal jobs, right? And we were paying our bills and uh, we left our apartment and went and stayed with somebody. And when we stayed with this person, her mother was part of the Church of Scientology. And her mother was not okay with us not being part of the church. So we were forced to get kicked out. Well, where do we go? You know? In that time staying with her, we got introduced to somebody that had the drugs that I was known for being able to move very easy. And so the first thing I did was I went to this guy. Hey, man, I need to get a place to stay. This chick got me for all our money, so on and so forth. The next thing you know, I'm, I'm back to dealing. The whole thing started very positively, <laughs> you know, and one decision to leave our apartment and go get a house with somebody else. Then once that decision proved to be not the best decision, um, we were immediately thrown into the underbelly of Vegas and wow, it was a quick, steep decline. Like there was a point in time in Las Vegas, again, on, on Tropicana Boulevard, there's a, a talk, a Taco Bell about a mile off the strip. And I remember accepting that day that I was going to die an addict, you know, because now here I was afraid of nothing. Like I felt like I had nothing to lose, you know, now this, this good kid that just wanted friends. Now I, I have a gun in my waistband. I have a pocket full of drugs. The cops know who I am. You know, my, my friends, I sat in a room one day and I looked around the room at my quote unquote friends and one guy's on the run for murder. Another guy is there's a pimp. There's his enforcer. There's a gentleman in the room that's on the run from the feds for stealing a computer system from DMV, which is the department of motor vehicles. And then, then just some other rent, but these, these were the, the friends I was keeping at this point. So I went from, country boys that played golf and baseball that just like to do drugs to like real problems. And I just accepted like, I'm going to die an addict because I can't see where I'm going to get to stop doing this. That was a tough day. You're moving drugs, you're buying drugs, you're selling drugs and doing drugs as well. All at the same time. Yep. Oh yeah. And you're probably up to your neck in the sense that, you know, you can't mess up because there's people that'll just, take you out oh yeah yeah there was one time there was a gentleman that came was was sent for me that i learned after the fact and he was supposed to buy some drugs for me and i kind of knew he was a pain in the ass so i was on guard with him and i I went to sell him what he was there to get and he went to pull a gun from his waistband and i i had to beat the guy up like it was it was him or me and the decision had to be made and so it had to be him you know it wasn't going to be me so yeah, there was plenty of people that wanted to see me out of the way. And it was really situations like that that led me that, okay, am I really ever going to stop doing drugs? It certainly doesn't appear like it. It doesn't feel that way because everywhere I go, it finds me. 
But that's that's the problem with that mindset and that illness and that sickness is because it wasn't that I found it. It was that it found me. And that was, you know, certainly the wrong way to be be looking at this. You know, but the sickness led me to believe, well, it found me again. This must be what's what's good for my life, you know, and, and I'm going to die an addict in Las Vegas with a gun in my waist. I don't know that I could ever properly properly communicate how far from who I am that really is because I'm a lover. Like I'm a hugger. I'm, I want to see everybody I come across do fantastic. Even if you've done me wrong, I wish you the best. And if I can help you, I will. Even if it bites me, that's who I am. But I found myself accepting the consequences of my decisions. You know, I put myself here. These are the rules of the place you put yourself. You have to abide by these rules. And it's a scary place to be because if I wasn't walking around looking like a frightened child full time, I'm a hell of an actor. (laughs) You know, it was scary just talking about it now. And in each episode, when I'm recording my podcast, I'm like, I have epiphanies while I'm telling it. I'm like, oh, that's insane. Because I, I forget about things, and then as I'm talking, it comes back to me, and I'm telling the story, and I'm getting back in it. Like, I'm almost listening to the story while I'm telling it, and just amazed that, one, that I lived, but two, that I've accomplished anything in my life after it. And that's why I, f- I feel like it's so important that I I tell this story, because there are people out there that are really suffering and just need somebody to connect with. They need, they need to understand just one person. And then if they can believe in one, they can find another and another and another and get themselves out of acceptance that they're going to die an addict. You know, if I could help one person, you know, listen to this crazy story and just know I clawed my way out of here, just come with me. You know, I'll, I'll do my best for you and, and I'll, I'll claw you out with you. Like it just, if one person can take something away and, and just know that it's okay, it's okay to be wrong and it's okay to make bad decisions, accept it and move on, learn from it. Don't dwell in it. So how did you get out of this crazy situation? Um, so in the beginning of our conversation, we talked about that my father wasn't in the picture. Um, one day I struggled to get back to where my girlfriend was because she was on the one side of Vegas. I was on the other and things had gone. We were homeless by this point. I had tried to stop dealing, stop, stop doing the drugs, but the addiction had taken over. It wasn't no longer about making money anymore. It was just about getting high now nobody wants us around because I don't have the drugs anymore. So it took me four or five hours to walk back to where she was. And when I got to her, she told me she was pregnant. And that's the last day I did drugs. I know that sounds insane, but it was more important to me to be a father and make sure that my child does not do what I just did. Because all of a sudden I realized it was almost like when she said I was pregnant, the reality of why I'm here 
washed over me. And I'm not going to do that to him. So when we got sober, chartered a bus back home and uh, started clawing our life and, and putting pieces back together as, as best we could. He was my savior. That was, that was my reason to get sober. And I, everybody needs one. If you have no reason to get sober, nothing to hold on to, nothing to cling to, if, if nothing drives you to stay sober, because it's not you or you wouldn't be doing that. But those people that can't find it, that was mine. And I was very lucky. I was very lucky because she, she advised me that she was pregnant very shortly after that day when I said, I'm going to die an addict. You need to go home. I tried to force her to go home. You need to call your parents, tell them to come get you. This is where I die. And it was probably two weeks later. She told me she was pregnant and it wasn't easy, but I wasn't going to do that to him. And I knew it was, I knew it was a boy. I knew it. I knew it was. And how old is he today? 17. So 17 years sober. Yeah. Well, so that's, yeah. Um, I have not touched drugs since then. I did struggle deeply with alcoholism for several years leading up to and following the passing of my grandmother. Um, so, because the problem is, is yes, I walked away from the drugs because I had my reason, but I was an unchecked addict. Okay. I was still an addict, but there was no treatment. There was no dealing with any of the reasons why. And so as soon as life got a little tough again, as life does, once kids and mortgages and all that stuff kicks in, it was very, uh, it was a very short trip to the bottle. And that was another dark turn that life took. Um, by the grace of God, I'm two years sober from alcohol today. And that's what's allowed me to tell this story and have this conversation is because, wait, there's, there's, there's a reason for this. It, it, I couldn't have lived through all of this to just keep this story to myself, to not reach out to other addicts, to not hold somebody's hand and tell them it's going to be all right, whether it's metaphorically or realistically, you know, um, but it, this can't be for nothing. Look, there's no doubt, Jason, it hasn't been an easy journey for you at all. And thank you for being so open and honest and for telling your story, because I think it's only by us being transparent mm. and open that people can learn from other people's journeys um yeah you know and that it isn't all the world isn't all beautiful instagram pictures you know it's not it's not you know and what i sort of against is in recovery rehab centers and recovery rooms want to kind of jump to the flowers and rainbows and instagram pictures right everything's great but the reality is is i struggle every day the struggle stays. It's real. It doesn't go away. That's what we need to talk about is I remember sitting in rooms and, and people going, oh, I have, uh, you know, 26 years sober or whatever. And I used to think, when does it stop being hard? And nobody could answer that question. And that's because instead of somebody telling you, 
it never stops being hard. Mm. They, you would get some version of a story or, you know, take one day at a time, you, you know, and, and that's, that's fantastic. And for some people that works great. And, and I'm all for that if that's what works for you. But the reality is, is for some of us that we need to know it never gets easy. It's always a struggle. You know, we have grown a, a devil on our shoulder that likes to tap us. Hey, Hey, this is really stressful. You know what we should do? <laughs> you know, no, we shouldn't do that. That's, that's the reality is that devil sits on my shoulder every day, you know, and you're right. We, we have to be very honest and stop trying to package things as though, oh, this is good for social media, or this is good for sales or this, because behind all of these social media influencers or behind all these businesses that, that preach or sell recovery, there's a real people that are struggling. You know, they're not just a number that you get to bill insurance for. It's, it's, it's not a click for a like, these are real people with real problems that are really hurting. And they need to know that there's a community out here that have been through the same thing as them. And we need to do this together. I'm looking forward to listening to more of your podcast, My Madness Method. And I don't know, have you even considered the idea? But with respect, I think you have to make a movie about your story. <laughs> you know, what's, what's interesting you say that is because uh, I've been told on multiple occasions, hey, you should write a book. And admittedly, later in life, I realized I, I think I, I, I deal with ADHD pretty tough. So sitting down to write a book is just out the window. And that's why the podcast was such a great idea. And people keep saying this, hey, man, this has got to be a movie. This has got to mm. be a movie, which is crazy. Like nobody wants to hear about my life, you know, but I've heard that frequently. And you know what? Here's the thing. If it helps anybody, if it touches anyone, I'm, I'm in for whatever, you know. It needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. that'd be fantastic. I'd yeah. love it. Thank you so much for sharing the, your story, your journey. It's great to see you looking so happy and so healthy today and continued success with your journey. And My Madness Method is the podcast with Jason Fryaz that I highly recommend people check out. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, Gary. I appreciate your time very much. <laughs>